0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come before you to prepare our hearts with prayer. Father, there's not a time when, you, when your word is open that you do not have a message for us. Father, there are important things, loving things, very strengthening things, very encouraging things that you want to say to us. There are also things, Lord, that will help to guide us in our lives, You help us to deal with the problems that we face and that we are experiencing. Today, dear Lord, we invite you again to speak to us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it was over 2,500 years ago that one of the richest and most powerful and wisest men who ever walked the face of this earth gave a description about life on earth. It's a stunning description of life on earth. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10. It makes this, he makes this observation to, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with his income. This, too, is vanity. Now, what makes this such a stunning statement is the fact that, I don't know about you, but everything that I was counting on money to do, he says, ain't going to do it. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You are not going to find that kind of satisfaction that you thought you were going to have if you had enough money. It doesn't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. The very thing that we thought would bring us peace and contentment won't man is unable to be content, to be satisfied with what he has, whether he has a lot or he has a little. It doesn't matter. He just has this thought in him. He just has this drive in him. He wants more. He wants something different. Now, this description is just as applicable today as it was when it was first written. Everywhere we look, people are struggling to know what they want, when they want it, and be satisfied after they get it. Have you ever noticed that? You know, people talk about things like, I'm so excited the COE prices are down. I'm going to go out there and get this car and get that car, you know. And they go down to the dealer and the dealer's waiting for them with open arms, you know. And they plop out all this money on the table. And then after they had the car for a few days, what next? What next? What next? You see, we have this insatiable drive to want more People struggle also to sustain the Singapore dream and are disintegrating under the pressure. Everybody says to themselves, I want the five C's or if you, depending on who you are, the four C's or the six C's, whatever. And people say to themselves, I'll do anything to get these things and I'll work hard for it. And once they get it, what's next? What's the next C? You see, that's what they want. This insatiable hunger for more to be discontented people feel the strain on their savings and the schemes of the agent of the agency set up to meet those needs should be doing more they say you know if you're going to subsidize my my fees 50% why not 60% why not 70% why not 100% you see we always want more we can't be contented Few people experience the peace of being content. More people live under the curse of being discontented. And people know this. People feel this. Some more intense than others. But what concerns us is how should the child of God face this mighty challenge? How should we face it? As disciples of Christ, how can we make contentment a reality and not just a dream? You see, that's the challenge for us today. Thankful, I'm so thankful for God's word that is here to guide us. And God's word in the book of Philippians helps us to discover how we can make contentment a reality instead of keeping it just as a dream. For those who are just joining us or rejoining us after a long absence, it is good that we stop and ask ourselves the question, where have we been and where are we now in our study of the book of Philippians? And so when we do this, we find that the Apostle Paul has been speaking of the topic of joy. He has this joy that he has in the midst of very painful and uncertain circumstances. How uncertain, how painful well, he was a prisoner in a Roman prison. <laughs> that's got to be painful, you know. And so he's also uh, awaiting the, his day in court and for the verdict to be rendered in his particular case. So there's all this uncertainty. There's always this discomfort and all of this that's going on. And so Paul still writes to his readers about the topic, the theme of joy. He says, you can have joy. Even in the midst of all these kinds of adverse circumstances, he says. As tough as it is, Paul still finds joy in many different aspects of his life. What aspects were these? Well, in the book of Philippians, there are many great authors, pastors, theologians who summarize what has happened. And one of those is Warren Wiersbe. Pastor Warren Wiersbe was the longtime pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. And he has a knack. He has a a way of looking at things and being able to put them all together. He puts the little pieces together to make great big pieces so that we can understand them. And this is his summary of the book of Philippians. He says in chapter 1, that Paul finds joy in having a single-mindedness on the fellowship, furtherance, and faith of the gospel. Yeah, he was locked up. Yes, he was limited to what he can do. But Paul says, I'm still rejoicing. Yes, I know there are people who are unscrupulous and people who are outside the prison that are taking advantage of their positions and they're preaching a false gospel. But people are coming to Christ, he says. And he rejoices in that. And he says that he had the single-mindedness on the furtherance of the gospel and faith in the gospel. In chapter 2, Paul found joy in having a submissive mind like Christ. And so he says to himself, he sees Christ and he sees how he came from heaven's glory down to the goriness of this ugly world with all of its sin and all of its uh, problems. And yet he reached down and he came and he took up his role to be the savior and redeemer of the world. They called he called and took no glory for himself. And Paul says that, remember myself, remember Timothy and Epaphroditus, they all had the submissive mind of Christ, putting the interests of others before their own. That was in chapter 2. And then when we come to chapter 3, what did Paul take joy in? He took joy in having the spiritual mind as he looks at his past, present, and future. He looks at his past and he says, hey, you talk about living high on the hog. You talk about living at the top of the rung of the social ladder. He says, that was me. That was me. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. I graduated from what would be the equivalent of the Harvard of the East. I came from the best schools. I had the best teachers and I had a great job and all of these kinds of things. People looked up to me and he says, I count all that as loss for Christ. And he says to himself, my life now is difficult, to be sure. It's not like the one I had. But he says, I look forward to that day when when God will resurrect me and bring me by his side. That was chapter 3. That takes a spiritual mind to think that way. To not focus on just the material and temporal. But he had a spiritual mind. This brings us to chapter 4 then. It's having a secure mind. That rests on God's peace and contentment. And this is what he's going to, this is where we are today. This is where we're going, okay? And so when you think about this, what kind of mind should I have as a child of God? What is it that governs how I think? What governs how I will act? And Paul says it's having these minds, single-mindedness about the gospel, submissive mind like Christ, a spiritual mind, and a secure mind. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. I don't do this very often, but I think it's good for us. We have been studying the book of Philippians for several months now. Now, I dare to ask you then, how are we doing Have the lessons of having the mind of Christ in how we think and treat one another taken root and bearing fruit? Is it? Do you remember that? Are we pressing on? Are we persevering to become more Christ-like? Are we really allowing what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 9 happen in our lives? Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. The things you have heard and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. One of the most discouraging things, not to me as a pastor, but I think the saddens and it sorrows God greatly is when his word goes forth and there is little or no impact Upon the lives of God's people. Can you imagine what kind of impact that must have on God? You know, he sits there in heaven and He sent and this Holy Spirit is working amidst of God's people. And it's just like the truths of God just go one ear and out the other. And stopping very short between the two distances. It seems like we come to church today with this idea. I've come for my weekly spiritual fix. I get it when I'm in the pew and it lasts about as long as it takes for me to get to that door. And suddenly all bets are off. All bets are off. God's word is truth. And one of the impacts of truth is that it transforms lives. It sets us free to be like Christ and to live like Christ. Do we really believe that, though? That's a nice thing to say within the four walls of this sanctuary. But do we honestly believe this? Will the things that God says to me and to you, will it really make a difference on how my marriage is going? Will it really make a difference how I how I parent my children? Will it really make a difference to my coworkers, to my classmates, and all of these kinds of people? It won't if all it does is hit us here and stops at the back door. You see? So the question is, all of this talk about having this certain mindset, has it really sunk in? Can you honestly say, my mind has changed? I'm really trying to think differently now. And when I think differently, I act differently. And so these are the questions, the hard questions we have to ask ourselves now and then. There is so much that God wants us to learn and live. He wants us to uh, know how to have joy in the midst of good and bad circumstances and situations of life. And that's why he speaks to you and I today. I pray that you're ready for this. I really do. I pray that that you're ready because it's really important. So the question then becomes, what has to happen for us to make contentment a reality in our lives? What has to happen? Well, let me share with you three thoughts that come forth from God's word. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And verse 10 and on to verse 13. First of all, there has to be some time spent understanding what it is to be content, to be content. We have to be on the same page here. All right. Now, first of all, we can go to the dictionary. See what the dictionary says. The dictionary defines contentment as the state of being mentally and emotionally satisfied with things as they are. Now, remember, the dictionary is a secular source, okay? Notice here, they can't say things about God. They can't say anything about the Holy Spirit. They can't say anything like that. They have to be very secular and direct in their approach. So the best they can come up with is contentment is a state of being mentally and emotionally satisfied with things as they are. Well, are there other things we should know about contentment? I mean, we're, ch- we're children of God here. We belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords. What is it that we should know? Well, we should see what the Bible says about contentment. And I want there are many places we could go. But one of those that I'd like you to join me in is Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Now, you say to yourself, Hebrews, (laughs) that's a strange place to go. But let's let it play itself out. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 to 6. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 to 6. And this is what it says. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Now, several things to notice here. What does it do? First of all, it says, be free from the love of money. The love of money drives us to do everything and anything to possess more of it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. If you love money, man, there's nothing that will stop you to get more of it. All right? Now, let's do a little exercise here. All right? Would you – what would you be willing to do to get more money? Okay? Would you be willing to sell a precious piece of jewelry in your jewelry box? Would you be willing to do that? Well, maybe. Would you be willing – to sell your home and buy a bigger home, a more spacious home, with the idea that you're going to get more for it at the end when you sell it? Would you be willing to do that? So far? Okay. Would you be willing, in order to have more money, to sell your soul in order to get a few more zeros out of your bonus check? Are you willing to sell your integrity for a few more zeros in your bonus check? The love of money causes us to do everything and anything to possess more of it. Just be free from that. He says, be content or be satisfied with such things as you have. The word content there actually means to be able to say, in a summary, enough is enough. I have enough. I don't need anything more. I have enough. It's willing to say that I am self-sufficient. God has taken care of my needs. To be content with such as you have. But I want to direct your attention to what he says next, because this is the crux of being content. Being content because of what God does. He says here, God, will, God has said he will not leave us or forsake us. He will not forsake us or leave us. Then he rushes on to say, because of who God is, he is our helper. So when you talk about this whole idea of being content, you talk about who God, what God does and who he is. That's the foundation of this idea of being content. When we go further into it, we ask ourselves, what is it about God and what has he done that would cause us to be content? Well, the most obvious is the fact that it's the story of the gospel. That he is our Redeemer, our Savior and Lord. And, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. That was the greatest thing that he ever did for us. I mean, you say to yourself, no, the greatest thing God ever did was provide for my fees so I can get my degree. God did this. God gave me this. God gave me that. No, 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 no. The whole thing, the biggest thing that God ever did was sending his son to die on the cross for our sins, yours and mine. If you go to Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 8 and reading on to verse 10, we read this marvelous declaration. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, what does it say? We shall be saved by his life. You say to yourself, wow, somebody died for me. Someone took my place. Someone took the punishment for me. You got it. You got it. You got it. And if we would receive what Christ did on the cross for us and believe that God accepted this sacrifice and he wrote resurrecting him from the grave, we can have eternal life and forgiveness of sin. If we had time, we would go to Romans chapter eight and there we would read the logic of the apostle is flawless. He says, if God were to give us his only son, Isn't Stan a reason that he would not spare giving us everything that we need? That's a paraphrase. Okay, that's a paraphrase. But that's the thought behind it. That's the thought behind it. So what God, who God is and what God does is important. Now, you say to yourself, okay, that's one thing to say that. But do we have any examples of this actually working itself out? Can we really uh, count on having contentment? Is it just a pipe dream or is it real? No, it's real. Listen, we have to see what Paul, the Apostle Paul sees in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And it says this, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before but you lacked opportunity. And so what does this have to do with anything? Paul sees God working in the lives of the Philippians that results in them supporting him again. It brought great joy to him to see this. It brought great joy to see him. He was overjoyed at their renewing their support for him. The Philippians and many others were instrumental in Paul's ministry at the very beginning. They set out a course. They supported him in those early days. Now, some of them had to drop off for one reason or another. We're not given privy to why they stopped giving to him. We do know that the Philippian church was poor. We do know that they struggled. And so it might have been at one point they just couldn't afford it anymore. They just couldn't do it. And so they stopped supporting him. But now God had provided for them in such a way that they could restart their support of him. And he was just overjoyed. He was overjoyed. This was an act of God's providence that they were able to help him again. Paul sees God providentially working in nature and in the lives of his people, resulting in his support for him. Theologians call this the providence of God. You might say to yourself, well, I'm not quite so familiar with that term. Can you help me with that, Pastor? Yeah, I can help you a little bit. Providence is made up of two words, pro and, and, uh, and resonance to the end. One, is to, one means before, the other one means to see. So what happens, basically, if you put this, it's that fact that God sees ahead. God sees ahead. Well, some people might say all that means is that God knows what's going to happen ahead of time, you know, but it actually carries greater weight than that. The providence of God actually says that God is actively at work making things happen to accomplish his plans and purposes, such as providing assistance, removing obstacles. That is all the work of God ahead of time. Warren Wearsby, when he speaks of this, he has this quote, providence of God. It is the working of God in advance to arrange circumstances and situations for fulfilling his purposes. Where do we see this happening? We see this happen in the Old Testament, in the life of Joseph. You remember Joseph. Joseph had this terrible life. You know, his brothers hated him, so they They threw him in a pit. They sold him to slavers. And then he was, you know, put and transported to uh, and sold in Egypt of all places. Oh, terrible life. I wouldn't want a life like that. All of those awful things happened. Then he was thrown in. He was, you know, he was uh, accused falsely of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, um, of a crime. And so he was thrown in prison. And all of these things happened. But God was in it from the very beginning. And God was able to prepare the way. Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. These are, this is what Joseph said to his brothers. And it says in verse 5, now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God was going to preserve the Jewish nation. And he sent Joseph ahead of time to make that happen, he says. Also, we know that even the Apostle Paul had this story a strong sense of God's working in his life. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he concludes this section by saying, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you see the providence of God. You see God at work here. That's what Paul saw when the Philippians renewed their support for him. He says, wow, this is amazing. You are back with me again. You're able to help. It's almost like, for example, what Warren Wiersbe summarizes this. And he says, life is not a series of accidents. It is a series of appointments. Of appointments. So how does that affect us? We can be content." knowing that because of who God is and what he does, we will have what we need for the moment and that God will provide what we need if we need it when we need it. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? We can be content because of who God is and what he does. We will have what we need for the moment and that God will provide what we need if we need it, when we need it. You see, sometimes we, that just passes over us. We get so wrought up. We get so discontented. We want this, we want that, and we want it now, okay? Or we want it yesterday. <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. We get so wrought up. But part of being contented is resting in God and knowing that he knows best. And we will get what we need. Contentment is being satisfied with the way things are because of who God is and what he does. All right? So that's the first thing. We had to spend some time trying to understand what it is to be contented. But there's more. There's more. Paul goes on in verses 11 through 12. And he gives us the second thing that must happen. There has to be some time spent learning to be content. Learning to be content. Now, I, I know for some of us, that probably doesn't sit very well. We, we probably come from the school of the miraculous, all right? And so we get in this mood, and we, we get on our knees, and we go before God. God, make us content, and we expect to hear the music. We expect to feel. Feel the smoke of the and smell the incense, you know, and we expect all of this to happen. And without lifting a hand, all we have to do is pray and it will happen. Well, Paul really destroys this because he turns around and says that we have to spend time learning to be content. How does this unfold? Go back to Philippians chapter four. And if you look at verse 11, it says this, not that I speak from want. It's not that I had this big need that I got all excited about your gift. No, no, no. I got excited because I saw God's hand in it. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Look at that word. That word learned to be content in whatever circumstance. Whatever circumstance means not just one kind of situation, but in whatever circumstance that may come. You know, some of us would probably say, you know, um, we would be very flattered, wouldn't we? If someone comes to us and says, ah, oh, this situation just happened and I came to you for advice. And, I, and, and then you, you answer them. You say, I'm very glad you came to me. You came to the right person. I'm an expert in this situation. Okay? And so we th- we th- we, this person looks to us very longingly. Please, please, please tell me what to do. All right? And so what happens We may be good in one circumstance, but guess what Paul says in whatever circumstance. Well, what are the what are the whatevers? What what kind of situation is he talking about? Look at verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. Okay, and says in any and every circumstance, I have, what does the word say? Learned. The secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Without going through all the gory details, Paul tells us, I have learned how to deal with all these different situations from one extreme to the other, from poverty to prosperity. I have learned how to do these things, to deal with these things. Now, he's recalling his experiences, of course. We have to be careful with experience because sometimes experience can be misinterpreted. But if we're careful, it's a great teacher. Experience has a way of teaching us life lessons that couldn't be learned any other way. You may be going through some excruciating situation in your home or in some kind of relationship. Or you are on a roll and experiencing some exciting prospects in your career. Either way. Be on the alert about what God is trying to teach you. All right. Be on the alert for what God is trying to teach you. One of the commentators I was reading had a great line. And what he said was, it's his observation that prosperity has damaged more believers than adversity. Prosperity has damaged more believers than adversity itself. Why? Because we don't know how to handle it. We didn't learn the lessons that God wanted us to learn when he gave us prosperity. Okay? And so this is what is before. We have to watch out and ask ourselves, what is God trying to teach me? Don't resent the circumstances that God allows you to experience. The loss of a job, the retrenching of your career, or the promotions and bonuses that you're getting. Take the opportunity to accept them as ways God is teaching you to be content in whatever circumstances you are in. Okay? There's a dear, dear friend of mine in Texas. And he would be what you would call in Asia a real estate tycoon. All right? I mean, his developments his uh, are just enormous. And so one day he called me up and he says, Arnold, let's go have lunch. And I said, great, that'd be lovely to have lunch with you. And he says, my treat, that's even better. And then he says, we're going to go to one of the country clubs in Dallas. And I said, really? I've never been in one in Dallas. So I climbed to my car I met at the arranged time, and I went there, and I was a little bit early, so I was sitting there in the hall. I was the only Asian in the place, okay? And people were looking at me as they were walking by, like, do I really belong there? You know, should I be there? I mean, should I be parking cars, or should I be, you know, doing this or that, you know? So, I, you know, I got, I got a little uncomfortable. Then my friend came, and my friend said, come on, Arnold, let's go. And so we go into the dining room, and it was very nice. Went into the dining room, and then he says, no, 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 no. We're not going to that dining room. We're going into this dining room. Little did I know there was this exclusive dining room. And so I went in there with him, and it was opulent. It was beautiful. It was like something I had never experienced before in my life. And so he began to share with me a little bit about his life. He grew up in West Texas. And he says, he grew up very poor. Very poor. You would not know it. He says, Arnold, there were days in the life of my family when we had no food at all. We had to we woke up hungry. We went to bed hungry. That's the way it was. And then he began to recount how God's hand had been at work in his heart and in his life and his brother's heart and their life. And they have now become the second, first or second great developers of property in the United States. But yet, but yet, but yet, he is probably one of the most contented individuals that you would ever know. He doesn't live in the lifestyle in which he could live. In fact, he lives fairly modestly. But he has found his joy. He has found contentment in what he has. And he is using it for God. He donates countless amounts of money to God's work and to God's servants all around the world. He is content. He is content. He has found that peace that has so far has eluded most of us. Because we are discontent, but He is content. He knows how to, in, uh, knows how to function in poverty. He knows how to function in prosperity, and He's content. If we are ever going to learn to be content, we have to go through various experiences, various experiences. Well, the last thing is that there's. One more lesson that we need to learn about making contentment a reality in our life. There has to be some time spent recognizing the strength, the source of our strength to be content comes from God. Look at Philippians chapter 4 verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul does not say this in a cavalier way. He's not saying this verse so that we can just yank it out and pull it out whenever it's convenient for it. There's a context in which this is said. And the context in which this is said is that in the process of being taught to be content, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. All right. And he says, but I got the strength from God to do this that he has called me to do. If we are going to be content through various challenging experiences, we need to be strong. And that strength comes from God. Over and over again, Paul goes back to say that it is God's power that is working in his life. We read that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. We read 13 only last time, but we're going to go back to verse 12. So then, my beloved Just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. My friend, God is in it. God is in these circumstances, no matter how good or how bad they may be. He is at work in them for. So what it means to us is draw deep on this resource that God has given to us. It may be unseen by the human eye. However, it is just as real and it is just as available as anything else may be. Well, you say to yourself, yeah, but I'm, not, I'm a little suspicious of things I can't see. You know, I, I, you know, if I can't see it, I don't believe it kind of a thing. Well, let me remind you, for example, great trees. Great trees have great root systems. You can't see them. They're underground. And yet that's what makes the tree great. <laughs> it's this vast root system that you can't see. For example, there's mighty rivers. Where do mighty rivers come from? Mighty rivers come from mighty mountains that are snow-capped. But we don't always see those mountains, do we? We don't. It could be miles and miles, kilometers and kilometers away from where the river is. But yet we feel their impact. In the same way, we may not see God per se. We may not see the Holy Spirit, but he is there. And we need to draw on that resource. Contentment comes from the strength that God supplies. Well, why is being content so important to us? I'll just share two things very quickly. First of all, it frees us to concentrate on what really counts or what really matters. This is clearly stated in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 to 33. 31 to 33, Matthew chapter 6. Do not worry then, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what we will wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all, those, all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, it says. Sometimes because of our discontented spirit, we are so focused on the immediate and on the temporal, on the material that we lose track of what is really important. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, we get sucked into this whole morass, this whole quicksand of of experience where all we can think about is the material and the temporal. But once we learn to be content with what we have, we can be we can free ourselves to think about what is really important. Number two, it frees us to accept our weaknesses, well, such as they are, and the persecutions and difficulties that may come with living for Jesus Christ. If you look at Second Corinthians chapter twelve, Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse ten. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. It says this, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Contentment plays an important role in how much you and I can endure. Contentment plays a major role. Role in that. Very frankly, whenever we're called by God, we're challenged by God to get involved in something for him. It could be supporting a missionary. It could be supporting some kind of project. It could be a building program such as we're in. What's the first thing that comes to our mind? The first thing that comes to our mind, how will that affect our lifestyle? How will that affect us? And so we draw back. We hold back. We're very tentative about sacrificing. We're very tentative about getting involved. And so we end up sitting on the sidelines. Why? Because we are discontent. We are discontent. Instead of being contented. If we're contented, we say to ourselves, whatever it is God is calling me to do, it's okay. It's okay. I can live on less. I can live on what I have. I'm okay because of who God is and what God does. And so don't get caught up in all of that. Learn to be content. Well, let's wrap this all up. Contentment doesn't have to remain a mere dream. Make it a reality by understanding it, learning it, and recognizing the power that God supplies. Commitment. Don't try to live without it. It's just too important. It's just too important. Let's pray. Father, speak to the needs of our heart. Not to our wants, but to our needs. We need to know, we need to be content if we are ever to be set free. Father, may the truth of your word transform each one of us. May it free us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.